turn with me, if you would, to Ruth. We'll finish our Advent series this morning in the fourth chapter. The full text is printed for you in your program. I'm just going to read the first 12 verses. Let me invite you to stand as we hear God's word together. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech. And all that belong to Kilion and to Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Beloved, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the As we have sung, though the wrong seems incredibly Father, your word is living and active. All right, every good teacher reviews, so let's review really quickly, okay? Let's talk about the names in Ruth. Do you remember what the name Bethlehem meant? Anybody? House of Bread. bread. Very good. James, that's your one answer. You can't answer anymore. (laughs) All right. 
What did the name uh, What did the name Elimelech mean? Elimelech meant my God is king. What did the name Malon and Kilion? Surprisingly, not on 2017's hot new baby names. What did those names mean? Do you remember? Weak and frail. Yeah. What did Boaz mean? Strength is within him. Strength is within him. If we were to go over to the, uh, to the women's names, Naomi meant what? Pleasant, right? But she chose, her, she chose to change her name. She gets back from Moab after a 10-year journey out there and comes back into Bethlehem and says, don't call me Naomi, don't call me Pleasant, call me Mara. God has dealt bitterly with me. So we get to the point in the story where the night at the threshing floor has passed. And Boaz has acted honorably. And he said, you, Ruth, and your mother-in-law will be redeemed. He said, but there was a more uh, a closer redeemer, one who is nearer still, that has first rights to be able to come and redeem you. Now, remember I said that we can learn a lot about the character of someone by their name. What's the name of the nearer redeemer? Look in the text. Don't you see it? You don't, actually. Everyone else, we know their name except the nearer Redeemer. Why? Well, here's the, here's the scene. We're at the gate of the city. At the gate of the city, city, there would have been some chambers off of the city gate where business that needed to be conducted in the public square would be done. And so Boaz, very early in the morning, goes to the city gate, and he goes into one of these chambers where, where business would be done. And again, the near redeemer just happened to happened to be walking by. And he says, come here, friend. Come. Come sit here. Now, that's the English being very nice. The Hebrew is alomi palomi, which is a rhyming phrase. It sounds kind of fun. It rolls off the tongue, except it actually means nothing. His name is functionally Mr. So-and-so. We know literally nothing about him. Come here, Mr. So-and-so. Come sit down. Mr. So-and-so, as we'll call him from this point forward, comes and he sits down, and, he all, and Boaz also grabs 10 of the elders of Israel to come and to witness what's about to happen. 
And he opens the discussion with Mr. So-and-so by reminding him of the situation that their kinswoman, Naomi, is in. And he goes into um, preparing to make an offer. But notice what Boaz does. He doesn't show all of his cards the first time he makes the offer, does he? Look at it. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. So what does he do? He says, there's some land. Remember, in this day and age, land, all that comes with the land, this was the way that you uh, acquired wealth. So he's saying, look, there is some land. Naomi can't do anything with it. It needs to go to someone else. Would you buy it? Would you take the land and would you buy it? Buy Naomi's land, care for an aging widow for a few years. When she dies, the land is yours, free and clear. It sounds like a pretty good deal for him. I mean, after all, Naomi has this field. She needs money to live on. If there was a kinsman redeemer, they could come buy it and keep it in the family. The buyer would ultimately get to add the property to his own inheritance, provided there are no children are involved. So Boaz says, are you interested? And the nearer redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, says, sounds great. Sign me up. That's awesome. Now, I'm not a skilled negotiator, nor am I a good poker player. But it seems like you probably don't want to show your hand, which Mr. So-and-so has now done. Sure, he's interested in the property. Some more land, something to add to his assets. Boaz says, that's great. And then he does what I think uh, no other has done as well as Steve Jobs. You'll remember that Steve Jobs, the quintessential showman of all showmen, would do these great product reveal events And it would come to the end of the event and Steve Jobs would say, but there's one more thing. And this was Boaz's, but there's one more thing. When you buy the land, you're also going to acquire Ruth. That there was little cost and a ton of reward for him. But now, now it's completely different. Look, With this new bit of information, now Mr. So-and-so buys Naomi's land, has to care for an aging widow for a few years. He also has to marry the young widow, Ruth, support her for the rest of his life. He has to raise and support children with her, who then the children get her husband's last name, not Mr. So-and-so's last name. And when those children are grown, Mr. So-and-so gives them the land. In other words, 
In the first deal, Mr. So-and-so would increase the size of his estate without much cost or loss to him. But in the second deal, he's basically lighting his own wealth on fire and thus endangering his own estate. Now, it's about at this point that Mr. So-and-so changes his mind. Then the the redeemer said, Mr. So-and-so said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. In one of the most ironic parts of the story, we see this happening. Mr. So-and-so, in an effort to preserve his legacy and protect his inheritance in the eyes of the scriptures, loses all of it. His desire to protect his name and protect his inheritance, in the eyes of the scripture, we never even learn his name. Boaz instead embraced the opportunity as we read in verses 7, 7 through 10, Boaz says, I'll do it. I'll redeem it. And so they seal the deal. They, they ratify this exchange so that Boaz can come and take root of the things that this chapter reveals in my own heart. And it all has to do with or my talents or my treasure. I like to think that I'm generous, but I'm not. I choose what I will do, what I'll risk, what I'll sacrifice on the basis of whether or not it will fulfill me or whether or not I will enjoy it, or whether or not I can afford it. Mr. So-and-so, when presented with the opportunity to fulfill his role of being a kinsman redeemer to his kinswoman Naomi, at first was like, well, that's fine. I'll be happy to take the property from her and be happy to keep it in the family for her until it became clear that what was expected of him was going to cost him more than it was going to gain him. I can't step in and I can't risk it. When you sit down and when you look at life and you try and make decisions based on math of will I get blessed from doing this? Will I get a reward from doing this? Will I feel good about doing it? Will it make me happy if I do it? At the end of the day, if you're looking at service in God's kingdom, if you're looking at at loving God and loving people with eyes towards what you're going to get out of it, your math is always going to be flawed. There's always going to be a fatal flaw built into the equation. 
The reason that our math is flawed is because our math can never be able to account for what God may do as a result of our sacrifice. Even though it doesn't make sense on paper, even though it doesn't add up on paper, even then we still can't forecast what God will ultimately do. But we have to remember that Hesed love, this faithfulness love, this, this love based on commitment rather than based on feelings, this love based on I'm going to give my life for yours, not expect your life for mine, is a love that can be only shaped by the gospel. Here's the controversial thing to think about, friends. When it comes to how we steward all of our gifts, we are not called first to be stewards. We are called to be generous. Look at all of the examples in Scripture and, and name the number of times that love has ever, been, uh, has ever expressed itself first by being a good steward of resources. The father of the prodigal gives him his share of the estate so he can accelerate his downfall only to be received back home and have the fattened calf and the robe and the ring put on him. That's not stewardship, friends. That's love. For the father to send his son into the world, that's not stewardship. That's generous love. It cost him everything so that we might get everything. And yet, if it doesn't balance in our checkbooks or fit neatly on our schedules, or even give us a warm, fuzzy feeling, we're not sure we have time or inclination No offense to Dave Ramsey at all. Financial planning is good and stewardship is great. But at the end of the day, love is radical, generous, and oftentimes the math. Look at what God does. Look what God does. Verse 11. All the people who are at the gate. And the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give. Always been at work here in this uh, here in this world, but especially here in this story, through Ruth, Boaz would indeed become famous and have his name remembered in Bethlehem. Verse thirteen tells us that Boaz, Boaz fulfilled his promise that he made to the witnesses of Israel, and he fathered a child with Ruth, so that. The line of Elimelech would continue. This is only, by the way, uh, the second time. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son, verse 13. 
This is only the second time in the book of Ruth that the name of the Lord has actually come to the forefront of the narrative. The only other time that we see the Lord coming to the forefront of the narrative was equally significant. It was back in chapter 1, verse 6, when God brought his people food. God brought redemption to his people. So both times that we see the Lord coming to the forefront of the action in the narrative of Ruth, it's because God is bringing redemption to his people. In chapter 1, through food. In chapter 4, Not only was their son a blessing to Boaz, but he was a comfort to Naomi. Think about it. Between their son and Boaz, Naomi had care for the rest of her life. And listen to the chorus of the women of town reminding her, of all the blessings. Verse 14. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. See, the text isn't talking about Boaz there, is it? It's talking about the grandson of Naomi. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. As the child was put on her lap, verse 16 And given a name, we see the grace of God. The emptiness that she had felt at the end of the opening chapter has now been replaced with the fullness of And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. Obed's name is one that means one who serves. He becomes a redeemer, one who serves his grandmother, Naomi. So back in the beginning of the book of Ruth, I said that Elimelech's name was almost ironic in some sense. And it's true. Elimelech's name meant, my God is king. And yet, Elimelech took his family, moved them out of Bethlehem, went to Moab, because there was a famine in Bethlehem. And so they thought, well, Let's leave the promised land. Let's leave what God had provided for us and spin the dice and see what happens. Elimelech's name, my God is king, is also a beautiful. God is still king, even in the midst of our most wretched choices even in the midst of our most wretched rebellion, even though we turn and run and go the other way, it nevertheless does not negate the fact that God is king. 
And what's God been doing every step of the way here in Ruth? God has been redeeming all the things that we've wrecked for his glory. Elimelech's name, my God is king, is the book. God demonstrated his kingship again and again by first giving Naomi Ruth. And then by giving Ruth Boaz. And then by giving the family Obed. Maybe all of us who sit here and go, God may appear to be acting slowly or not at all, but he never forgets his promises. Not, he doesn't forget a single one of his promises. And when the timing of God reveals his promises coming true, they come true abundantly and lavishly. Friends, this is why we tell one another this grand and glorious story every single year of the redemption of God's people by sending his son into the world to rescue and ransom and redeem God's people from the sin that had wrecked the world. We don't tell the story because it's sweet. We tell the story because it's true. God sent Jesus into the world to rescue, ransom, and redeem you. And I don't know how God's blessings, how God's grace, how God's mercy is going to ultimately unfold in your life, how God is going to write the story for you, but we know ultimately how the story ends. It was the father of Jesse. You want to know the, the last time that Ruth is mentioned in the Bible? The last time that Ruth is mentioned in the Bible is not unlike what we see here at the end of Ruth. Look at verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered uh, Nishan. Sean fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, as a genealogy, most of the time we skip the genealogies because there are lots of begets and there's lots of names that we struggle to pronounce. But if you look over at Matthew's genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, He begins his gospel by writing this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. What did Tamar do? Go back and read Genesis 38 sometime. It's lots of fun. It's not good family table devotion reading. Tamar dressed up like a prostitute. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amimadab, Amimadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, 
and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon. By who? By the wife of Uriah. Now, here's what's really interesting in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Ruth is one of the four women who are named. The others that are named are Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba by implication. But Matthew, interestingly enough, he leaves out Eve, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Do you see this? What in the world? He puts in all of the outsiders. In fact, he puts in Tamar, who dressed like a prostitute, Rahab, who was one, Bathsheba, who made some really sad choices with her life, and Ruth, a Gentile, the Moabitess. Beloved, Matthew uses all of these to prepare us for Jesus. Jesus would be despised over his unique birth. In fact, if you go to the Talmud and look about the birth of Jesus, the Talmud says that Jesus is the son of a Roman soldier. The thing about it is God delights in taking the despised things as displays of his abundant faithfulness and miraculous grace. Ruth is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. She's a Gentile convert. And more so than that, Ruth is a Christ figure. She's the one who dies so that others might live. When she told Naomi that where you go, I will go, though Naomi was saying, my life is over, Ruth said, no, 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 my life is over. My life for yours. When the angel announced the birth of the Christ to Joseph, He said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself said he came to seek and save the lost. (laughs) Jesus came to rescue sinners, people exactly like you and I, people exactly like Jesus' own ancestors. If you just look around Christmas is not for those who have it all together. Christmas is precisely for those who don't have it all together. This is who Jesus came to rescue. Jesus came to rescue the people who could not possibly get themselves together. And the way that Jesus came to seek and save the lost was not by keeping himself at a protected distance from them, not by walling himself off in a fortress among the unoffensive people. Jesus was surrounded by sinners. And stunningly, these became his friends. Drew near to his people. He befriended them. 
He would ultimately show the greatest act of love and friendship possible by laying down his life for his friends. His friends were the ones who were the outwardly lovely and the outwardly not so lovely. The rich and the poor, the idolatrous and the religious, the anxious and the put together, the depressed and the distressed, the rejoicing and the reveler. God was not ashamed of the heritage and the story of Jesus' family. And friends, God is not ashamed of you or I. The feast has been spread and the welcome has been extended. God was not a steward of his wealth, carefully counting the cost, but rather lavishly and generously spread the feast and open the table wide so that we might have a feast with our friend Jesus. This is what God has always been doing. Every story in the Bible where he sent his son in the most unsuspecting of ways to the most unsuspecting of people to redeem the most unlikely and the most unworthy because of his unmatched and unparalleled grace. Jesus said, my life for yours, so that we might have all that we need to do the same. Beloved, we're not called to find our tribe or our safe people or our safe space, but go into the world and befriend the friendless. And together, form a community of people who have nothing else to bind them together, nothing else in common except for the work and the wonder of Jesus Christ because he loves you.